0: to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I'll be exploring Jack London's massive book on art, class, and individualism, Martin Eden. This book has often been described as Jack London's masterpiece, and that is something we can interrogate as we go through this over the course of at least three episodes, probably four. The story follows a working-class young man who, at the start of the novel, is about 21 years of age. Um, in fact, he's a down-on-his-luck sailor in a lot of ways, uh, who's kind of stuck in working-class jobs. The people in his lives really, you know, don't see much for him except work. Um, I think he's actually out of work at the start of the of the novel, too, without much to do, um, and After coming back from a voyage where he apparently saved the life of a member of a middle class family, he was brought over for dinner, he meets them, he becomes enamored with middle class life, and particularly he becomes enamored with a young woman named Ruth, and he decides that the best way to achieve what he wants out of life, to become something more than just a sailor, he decides he wants to become a writer. The central themes of this novel are class and individualism and how they interact. Class, of course, is a collective identity formed through our interactions with other people, people in our own station in life or perhaps um, with people who are in other stations but are in relation with us, such as our bosses, maybe the wealthy, maybe um, even friends who maybe b- belong to a different, uh, have more wealth than. friends capacity and education or whatever. Right? Or the people we might serve in our day-to-day lives. It's through interacting with them that our own class identity becomes articulated. But in any case, it's something that's quite collective. It's something we come to together. right? Class makes no sense for someone living alone on an island. But individualism, on the other hand, is something that comes out of our, our maturation. It comes out of our unique capacities and experiences, often in contrast with our class identity and the people maybe in our most immediate circle, such as our family, right? Part of growing up is becoming an individual and breaking free of your parents' point of view. It comes from our creativity. It comes from what we create. It comes from precisely the things that are more collective identities often fail to get right about us. And the conflict between these two things is precisely what Martin Eaton Eden goes through in the course of the novel in Martin Eden's case we have a working class man who develops into a very extremely strong individual uh, someone who rejects socialism he embraces social Darwinism he embraces a very individualist mentality at one point in the novel in the early part of the novel he's told by Ruth the woman he's falling in love with who's kind of advising him on how to make the transition to a life as a writer she tells him you got to go back to school and you got to become a Got to get your foundation in education. You got to learn what you know. Everyone else learns, and he rejects this. He says, "No, I'll just go to the library and I'll just learn by myself." Right. So he becomes this very, very strong individual. But in doing so, he becomes increasingly out of place with the people around him. By the end of the novel, Eden has rejected his working-class identity, uh, but he's even moved beyond the banalities of the middle-class life that originally attracted him to a life of the mind. And his isolation and his inability to really have a connection with the people around him is one of the major reasons why this character eventually kills himself at the young age of around 40, which is precisely the, the age that London died. A lot of people like to compare Martin Eden with Jack London, and it makes some sense to do this. Both were writers, both had working-class backgrounds, both had spent time at the sea, both probably had undergone challenges of 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 integrating into a class that wasn't theirs of their birth. But this novel, in many ways, is very different. In the way that Iron Heel was a a dissertation on Jack London's political views and and an expression of them, Martin Eden, although he might have some autobiographical elements that have a lot in common with Jack London, is in many ways the antithesis novel. In Martin Eden, Jack London has his character embrace social Darwinism, embrace individualism, which are things that Jack London explicitly, you know, says are not going to get us to, especially the individualism of it. And Jack London at one point said, the reason Martin even killed himself was because he wasn't a socialist. Had he been a socialist, he would have been able to use his intellect, use his capacity in, uh, in a purpose that would have helped his class and he would have kept that foot in the working class. And that may have been the thing that kept him from being so isolated. He he had to really die at the end because there was really no place for him in the world. Now in many ways, this story must be placed alongside the short story to build a fire and the novel call of the wild. These are things I'll, I won't look, be able to look at until I finish this volume of Jack London's writings and get to his, um, other volume which has his Klondike writings and the sea wolf and some of his stories but to build a fire and call the wild are i guess archetypal examples of london's work that reject individualism or are an express criticism of individualism In call the wild buck has to join a pack to survive in the arctic or in the yukon or wherever he is and he eventually kind of becomes a wolf he joins a pack and in to build a fire you have a character who alone dies that, that's the whole point of the novel of the short story it seems to me so if you're alone you're going to die and no matter what your skills are your ability your talents your training it's not going to be enough nature will get you in the end right and anyone who's read that story knows that if he had just had someone else with him he probably would have survived that that dilemma now this individualism fails to give us what we need to survive in a complex society where we must rely on others for all kinds of reasons. Many of Martin Eden's problems, <clears throat> even in like how to get work, how to get published, these kinds of things are easier if you have these social contexts and connections and even a pedigree. I mean, we can criticize pedigree and nepotism and things like that all we want in, in our own fields. But, you know, you got to be honest. That's one way you get jobs and one way you get employment, one way you and maintaining those contexts is one way you keep your career going. Martin Eden turns his back on all that and he, he likes to burn bridges. He believes hard work is enough to overcome challenges and he fails again and again in doing that, despite being an incredibly talented writer. Okay, so what happens in this novel? Um, well, the part I'm going to look at today covers. His introduction to middle class life and his decision to become a writer and then the challenges he faces in the early part of his career as a writer so it's really going to focus on those early chapters the first 11 chapters is what i decided to look at in this this episode it's around 100 pages now in chapter one we have an introduction that reminds us very much like the iron heel we be, as we begin, Martin Eden is a working class man and he enters the home of this middle class family, the Morses. And in this case, it's because Martin Eden has helped a member of their family during some crisis at sea. Maybe he saved his life. And Martin Eden just says this just his duty to do this as a sailor. And here it suggests that at this point in his life, he has a much more collective ethos. He just accepts the duty of being a sailor. He accepts you know, that just as part of his job. And he even says at one point, quote, any fellow would have done that. And we don't believe this is ironic or like a, a wink-wink, right? He's, he seems to really believe this, that this is just what you know sailors do. This seems to surprise the audience of middle-class educated folk who assume everyone should be and would be self-interested. And in fact, we get a sense that him being invited to their home is very awkward for Martin Eden, but it's almost for them a way of paying him back for what he did. So, you know, it's kind of paying the debt off, which is something Martin Eden initially doesn't think is really necessary. Now, much of this chapter is a dissertation on the experience of crossing into a new environment. We really have a fish-out-of-water situation. Eden is amazed at the art, the clothing, and even the modes of speech he hears. And I've, you know, i never seen London go into this much detail in the other novels of just like how the furniture looked or the clothing and, you know, pages and pages about the artwork and how it's all very amazing for for Eden. He's even surprised to hear someone call him Mr. Eden because he's always just called Martin or Martin Eden or, you know, he's not given this proper respect in his previous life. So he's surprised to hear that, even though that's a very common thing in, in middle class circles. The biggest realization in his life experience seems to The biggest realization he has is that his life experiences seem to pale in contrast to the intellectual experiences of the people in this home. And it's almost sad to read because you you learn how much Martin Eden has done and how many adventures he's gone on. And yet he somehow feels as inadequate face compared to what he's experiencing in this home. Quote, the next moment, angry at himself for the boast, he had gripped the arms of the chair so savagely that every finger end was stinging. At the same moment he became aware that the woman was entering the room. He saw the girl leave her chair and trip swiftly across the floor to the newcomer. They kissed each other and with arms around each other's waist, they advanced toward him. They must be mother," he, they must be her mother. She was a tall, blonde woman, slender and stately and beautiful. Her gown was what he might expect in such a house. His eyes delighted in the graceless lines of it graceful lines of it. She and her dress together reminded him of women on the stage. Then he remembered seeing similar grand ladies in gowns entering the London theaters while he stood and watched the policemen shove him back into the drizzle beyond the awning. Next his mind leaped to the grand hotel at Yokohama, where, too, from the sidewalk he had seen grand ladies. Then the city and the harbors of Yokohama, and a thousand pictures began flashing before his eyes. But he swiftly dismissed the kaleidoscope of memory, oppressed by the urgent need of the present. He knew that he must stand to be up to be introduced, and he struggled painfully to his feet, where he stood with trousers bagging at his knees, his arms hanging loose and ludicrous, his face set hard for the impending ordeal. So what I read in this is, yeah, he's just comparing these elegant women he's encountering now with elegant women he's seen on his voyages around the world, but he's got some really he's been around the world he's been to all these places yet he can't really articulate that as valuable experiences to these these other people right instead we get this focus on like the clothing and the gracefulness and, and the way they look in it, it it's a bit sad to actually read Now, in this same chapter, he begins immediately to become infatuated with Ruth Morse, the the young woman of the family. She's a college student, and Martin Eden is is constantly in the early parts of this novel fascinated with the fact that she's going to be a bachelor of arts. She'll play a major role in the novel as something motivating Martin Eden to, to move up in the world. And he also compares her to other women he meets in the world and this happens actually several times in the novel in various ways let me find the exact line okay here it is never had he seen such a woman the woman he had known immediately beside her on either hand raged the women he women he had known for an eternal second he'd stood in the midst of a portrait gallery for uh, wherein she occupied a central place, while about her were limed many women, all to be weighed and messaged by a fleeting glance, herself the unit of weight and measure. He saw the weak and sickly faces of the girls in the factory and the simpering boisterous girls from south of market. There were women in the cattle camps, the swarthy cigarette women of old Mexico. These in turn were crowded out by Japanese women, doll-like, stepping menacingly on wooden clogs, by Eurasians, delicate-featured, stamped with degeneracy by full-bodied South Sea Island women, flower-crowned and brown-skinned. All these were blotted out by the grotesque and terrible nightmare brood, frowsy, shuffling creatures from the pavement of Whitechapel, gin-bloated hags in the stews, and all the vast hells flowing of harpies, wild-mouthed and filthy, that under the guise of monstrous female form prey upon sailors, the scrapings of the ports, the scum and slime of the human pit." So again, we have this all these women he's seen and interacted with and experienced. And he just kind of tosses all those experiences away for Ruth. And it's the same thing he does later on. Actually, this happens earlier than that previous quote. But in both cases, he's kind of tossing out his experiences and, and seeing this middle-class life as the ideal that he must strive for. So in chapter two, uh we are continuing the evening in the home of the morses this chapter hits on the theme of eden being totally out of place and frustrated by his inability to match the sophistication of the morses the biggest gap he faces is in language there is a scene where he's embarrassed about math where they're talking about trigonometry and he doesn't know what that is or i think they say trig and he's like what's that and they said trigonometry he says well what's trigonometry and then they say what's well, math and and he didn't know what mathematics is so he became very embarrassed um although being very smart and aware and capable of learning a great deal he just doesn't have the vocabulary to express himself and that's a big frustration Martin Eden faces in the early parts of the novel in fact one of the first things he corrects about himself is his grammar and his language Eden is smart, though, and the others in the room know it, Um, but we have uh, examples of mutual fascination and attraction. Ruth is fascinated and attracted to Eden almost immediately, and Eden is in awe of his surroundings, and of course, as we've already seen, quite already in love with, with Ruth. But in the end, Eden is simply not capable of being part of the middle class on a cultural level. He, was, he wasn't one of their tribes, and he couldn't talk their lingo, was the way to, he put it to himself. He couldn't fake being their kind. The masquerade would fail, and besides, masquerade was foreign to his nature. There was no room in him for sham or artifice. Whatever happened, he must be real. So here, it's almost like the class nature is built into him, and he can't even be fake about it. Right? And, and you know, I... I've kind of, I feel very much for Eden in a way because I'm, I'm from a working class background myself. Although I, I went through too much education, certainly. Um, but, you know, I still fee- I still sometimes experience, you know, the some gaps in my education that must be rooted into the kinds of high school I went to or even the colleges I went to. Um, so, and just the way I speak maybe, uh, the casualness of sometimes how I speak. I sometimes feel, I feel Martin Eden's pain a little bit in this chapter. All right. Chapter three, uh, as Martin Eden leaves, he muses on the changes in his life coming from meeting Ruth and her family. So this is basically um, him kind of walking around the streets, thinking about this. And he really sees this as a life changing event. He says, no man had known nor no women had given him. The message of immortality but she had she had whispered it to him from the first moment she looked at him her face shimmered before his eyes as he walked along pale and serious sweet and sensitive smiling with pity and tenderness as only a spirit could and pure as pure as he had never dreamed purity could be her purity smote him like a blow it startled him he had known good and bad but purity as an attribute of existence had never entered his mind And now in her, he conceived purity to be the superlative of goodness and of cleanliness, the sum of which constituted eternal life. So, wow, this woman's really special, it seems. Now, he's dreaming about this and he's thinking about this. And at this moment, he's kind of humming. He's on the street sort of humming or mumbling something, a song. And he's reminded of his class status when a policeman questions him about his humming a tune, assuming him to be a drunkard. Um, and his limitations are further brought home to him when he goes, uh, to see his sister Gertrude and her husband, Bernard. I, I think Eden, Eden's kind of staying with them. I, I think he's, he's kind of like a, a third wheel in that family. And there's some hostility in this family over money and how much Martin Eden's bringing in and why isn't he working? You know, he should go back out to see. That's kind of the, 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 tone he gets from Bernard, especially, Eden's brother-in-law wants him to go back to see him to make money, to bring it into the family, or at least to get out of their hair. And this is our first piece of evidence that Eden's experiences with the Morse is beginning to affect how he sees his own class and family. And he starts to feel resentment and alienation beginning almost immediately uh, with the people who, you know, are really the closest to him and really the closest to him in you know, in his class status. So he's already becoming, entering this process of alienation that's going to shape so much of his life in the the future chapters. Chapter four. um, Well, Eden thinks about the momentous changes going on in his life here. I I think this chapter is set sort of in his bed. He's just kind of laying there dreaming. He falls in love with Ruth, but he also realizes that his own position in the world would not be enough for someone like her. He's surrounded by filth and poverty, and what can he have that could lead him to someone like Ruth? What could he ever do to attract her? You know what what future does he have with a woman like Ruth is basically what he's burdened with. And there's he a really interesting passage here where he begins to fast and fantasize about an East End London girl. So remember, the East End is where Jack London spent some time. It's the base of his book The People of the Abyss right so that's the setting for this woman he he sort of fantasizes about quote and then suddenly before his eyes on the foul plaster wall appeared a vision he stood in front of the gloomy tenement house it was nighttime in the east end of london and before him stood marjorie a little girl of 15 he had seen her home after the bean fest she lived in a gloomy tenement no a place not fit for swine his hand was going out to hers as he he said good night she had put her lips up to be kissed but he wasn't going to kiss her Somehow he was afraid of her, and then her hand closed on his and pressed feverishly. He felt her calluses grind and grate on his, and a huge wave of pity welled over him. And He saw her yearning hungry eyes and her ill-fed female form, which had been rushed from childhood, into a frightened and ferocious maturity, and then he put his arms around her in large tolerance and stooped and kissed her on the lips. Her glad little cry rang in his ears, and he felt her clinging to him like a cat. Poor little Starveling! he continued to stare at the vision of what had happened in the long ago. So one could read this, and, you know, we don't, you know, London is prudent enough not to give us the full detail of what happened. Is this the time he lost his virginity? It's possible. Um, But this is a moment in which you have this great potential for empathy with someone of, of a similar class, someone who's suffering. But this becomes for Eden at this point a reminder of what he doesn't want to do because after this fantasy he turns to his side and he picks up the Browning book and the Swinburne book these were I think books of poetry he borrowed from the Morses right or he I think or did he tell the Morses he read them from time to time but he picks them up and he's he seems to say like this is going to be my future right I'm going to turn my back on the East End girls He wants, he seems to want more than a poor factory girl. And he's not capable of having that kind of deep empathy for her anymore. It seems though that a life of a mind is the way to get there. So he fantasize, again, he fantasizes about this woman. He had an experience with a young woman, 15. Girl, really. But it's not clear how old Martin Eden is at the time. Could be just teenage love. But then he turns to the books. And he kind of makes that choice at this moment then chapter five uh so the next day eden wakes and he complains that the world he lives in is entirely material lacking any real beauty and he looks around him in the environments and it's very material it's very shallow it's of course it's filthy and and impoverished but it's it's funneled into material there's nothing there there's no way he can get a life of a mind surrounded by these people and the more time he spends with the people of his class the more he seems distant from ruth and he becomes increasingly disgusted with his surroundings, and even his own family. Quote, existence did not taste in his mouth. Up to then, he had pre- accepted exis- accept, oh, he, ex- he has accepted ex- existence, as he had lived up with it all around him, all about him, as a good thing. He had never questioned it except when he read books but then there were only books fairy tales fairy stories of a fair and impossible world but now he had seen the world possible and real with a flower of a woman called Ruth in the midmost center of it and thenceforth he must know bitter tales and longing sharpest pain and hopelessness that tantalized because it fed on hope so he decides to go to the library and start to learn and he hopes kind of in the back of his head to meet Ruth, but eventually decides he's not ready to meet Ruth. He's got to clean up his act. He's got to clean up his habits. And certainly he's got to improve his grammar and his way of presenting himself. So he's going to study first, right? So he hesitates, and this gets into chapter six. He hesitates on his efforts to kind of run into Ruth or call on her. And instead he kind of starts to creep around her and it becomes a, a bit of a creep here, right? He actually spies on her and looks at her from afar, watches her from afar, keeps tabs on her. But, you know, from our modern standards, it's it's pretty creepy. But anyways, he begins to believe that he has to reform himself to meet the standards of Ruth. Right. And we're reminded here of what London told us in The People of the Abyss about temperance. Right. I get the sense that he thinks temperance as an individual choice is certainly a good thing. Right. Um, in fact, he writes a whole book on John Barley Corn, where he talks about his own alcoholism. Um, and he starts that book saying he hopes the temperance movement succeeds. Uh, I'll get to that soon, uh, in a couple of weeks. But in The People of the Abyss, he also talks about how the temperance movement is part of this kind of language of thrift. And this language of thrift is something that's very oppressive to working people. And so he, he sort of rejects this uh ethos in his other work but here we have martin eden kind of making a self-choice to be temperate which i think he doesn't have a problem about his his problem with temperance is more like the ideology of temperance as a way to kind of attack the working class for like overspending right and and as part of this whole thriftiness you know he, he doesn't think thriftiness gets you anywhere um as a class even if it might get you somewhere as an individual chapter seven so Eden finally gets it together enough to try to meet Ruth, but he actually has to read *Intensive Vivi for a week. He even like asked the librarian for etiquette lessons, like, how do you call a, a woman? You know, do you call her Miss This? Or how do you address her? And the librarian explains at what point you can become familiar enough to use their first name and all this. It's, it's kind of cute. And he does just call up Ruth and makes a date with her. And mostly what they end up talking about is his failings in terms of education. So Martin Eden gets kind of humiliated and lectured at by this more this higher class woman about his failings. And for me, it, it's kind of hard to read because, you know, I that's the kind of thing. If someone told me that, I might just walk out of the room. Um, but Eden, I, he's either so enamored with her or he agrees with her that it, it kind of bounces off him enough. Um Obviously, though, Eden realizes that he has no money for, to go back to school, right? And this is where he starts the first of several arguments where he says, I can be an autodidact, right? I have the library card. I can go here. I don't have to go back to school. And I couldn't even anyways because I, I need money, right? And if I'm not go, if I'm going to be studying all the time, I can't be working, which means I can't pay. But if I want to go to school, I have to work. And then I don't have money, time to, to develop my skills. So it's going to have to be autodidacticism. Which just to be honest, just between um, us, I think it's probably one of the best ways to learn. Um, I'm not sure not sure how much the role of the teacher really matters that much in education. And I might agree with Martin Eden here. Um, I've been in classrooms before and I, you know, there are, you can lecture to students, you can lead discussions, you can assign things, you can give feedback to their work, but learning ultimately is about the student figuring it out for themselves right i think that's partially what the socratic method's about right anyways um i think part of the richness in this novel is the class-based j- judgments about proper education and i think there's an argument to be made here about it now martin eden kind of buys that he needs to be educated to be a good writer it's just a debate about how to become educated Right? But we see here the middle class fetishists fetishizing education, fetishizing degrees, fetishizing the standard lessons while looking down on those who educate themselves just by going to the library. Right, And we, we still see this all the time in, in fields. There's plenty of brilliant historians out there who don't have a Ph.D. Of course, they can stand up to you know professional historians. They've done research, especially at the local level. There's a lot of great local historians who don't have advanced degrees. Yet they don't get the same kind of respect um, that you know, someone from Harvard might get. It's a bit like asking the poor to eat cake, too, right? Especially in a time before you have mass public education and, and you know, education and grammar school is still a luxury for most most families. In short, a formal education is not possible for Eden for reasons of money. And she also spends a lot of time in this chapter criticizing her grammar, his grammar once again. And again, this is something that Eden just sort of takes. He takes the corrections and, and starts to apply them because he really wants to impress her and he really wants to be, eventually become a writer. But how much is grammar a part of a class division? How much do we use grammar? You know, the so-called grammar Nazis on online, right? You've probably run across these people who fix your posts. You know, you forget the question mark and they're like, ah, you know, should have done it this way or, you know, just the people who want perfect grammar or they use poor grammar as a way to attack your ideas right ultimately we as we see in this novel grammar policing is a way of kind of establishing class divisions or divisions of rank based on education and that's something i think we should criticize and uh, and be concerned about because language is fluid language is always there's no formal language right except maybe a A state might be able to establish a formal language through the education system. But at the end of the day, language is what's spoken and what's understood. Right. And that's why you have different dialects forming and regional characteristics and and all that. And why language changes. Right. People say things now that they would, would have been gibberish 20 years ago because of new technologies. So. If we understand language as more fluid you know it doesn't seem what's our foundation for policing people's grammar and the word choice and all that but there's a lot of that in this part of the novel so chapter 8 most of this chapter is this a story Ruth tells her about a man named mr. Butler and I, I didn't look up the really is this mr. Butler maybe he is I, I didn't bother checking but this is a figure who's basically the Alger myth He moves his way up from working-class backgrounds to become intellectual, an economic powerhouse, an intellectual powerhouse, and even a political powerhouse through hard work and effort. It's basically the kind of story that middle-class people love to hear about, the story of the meritocracy, the story of the person who lifted himself up by the bootstraps, right? Because we saw this actually in the Iron Heel as well. it's right. When the oligarchy began sending their children to... School to get professional degrees, right, and they start to actually get jobs in businesses and science and technology and these kinds of developing things, right. Now they're still part of the ruling class, but they they surround themselves then with the language of merit, right. I have this degree, and this is what makes me special. It's not that I was born wealthy, and even if I was, it doesn't matter because I still earn this degree, right. So merit becomes another kind of way we can create these class barriers. And Ruth here is telling a story about someone who is upwardly mobile. And her point seems to be that Martin should do the same thing. He should learn from Mr. Butler and get his way up the same way, get educated. And she's still insisting here on the need of Martin Eden to get a formal, proper education. So in Chapter 9, this is an important chapter that is kind of a breakthrough uh, or a turning point in Eden's life. He's running out of money and he he's forced to go to sea again and he ends up spending eight months at sea and he goes all over the world and what he experiences at sea is a growing frustration over the customs the grammar and the behavior of the sailors he's already becoming distant from his co-workers right so it's becoming he's starting to venture away from the working class in his identity moving into something else now he's not yet established himself as a middle-class writer yet but he's starting to pull himself away and he starts to thumb his nose or be critical of his co-workers but more importantly Eden also begins to decide to write here it's it's here he makes the decision he wants to be a writer and he wants to begin by telling stories of his life at the sea he he reads a fair deal and he sees that people get published and he knows that people get paid to write and he knows they get paid what like a cent a word or you know $50 a column or whatever so he naively assumes that anything written and sent in will be published and paid for and he, start, he starts to send his stories out to newspapers and magazines. So he writes an account of his voyage to the San Francisco examiners. And he just sends it out and he's waiting for the check. It's kind of humorous, actually, um, how naive he is about this. It's, it's almost exaggerated, I have to believe. But he, he seems to really believe that just sending it to the newspaper, he just sits there and wait for the check. I think he's waiting for $50 for that piece and then he also knows the youth companion like adventure stories so he prepares a I think it's like a 15,000 word five-part serial adventure novel for the youth companion like a a young man's magazine of adventure stories and again he thinks it's just a matter of wait for it to be accepted which will only take a few days and then start to collect the money but when he talks to Ruth about what he did she scoffs at him she actually sort of insults him saying what are you talking about you can't write you can't just start sending stuff out writing's a craft it's a skill it takes years and years to learn one cannot simply jump into it without a foundation and without training she insists that he go back and relearn the basics so she kind of like get away don't get away from me until you kind of get your education and then we can talk about you becoming a writer but don't just start writing so in Chapter 10, Eaton, Eaton kind of takes this lesson to heart and in fact does try to enroll into a high school. And he takes the tests and he's interviewed with the professors and the teachers there. And he's basically told, your grammar's pretty good, but everything else stinks. You don't have any foundation in anything else. And essentially he fails his entrance exams. So when he goes back to Ruth and tells her what happened, here's what she says. When I mean, you get a sense of her condescension and her, her f- firm belief that a formal, proper, guided education is what he needs. You know far more than any of the students entering high school, and yet you can't pass the examinations. It is because what education you have is fragmentary, sketchy. You need the discipline of study, such as only skilled teachers can give you. You must be thoroughly grounded. Professor Hinton is right, and if I were you, I'd go to night school a year and a half of it might enable you to catch up in that additional six months. Besides, that would leave your days in which you could write. Or if you cannot make a living by your pen, you'd have days in which to work in some position. And a quote. So this is the lesson of someone who had everything handed to her in life. Right? Her education, her refinement, her money. And she can so easily say, Oh you work during the day and you go to school at night, you know? There's 24 hours in the day, right? You have plenty of time to do both things. Right? And of course this is the language we we hear all the time to we give to all time all the time to people today who might be on the dole or struggling on welfare. And it's like well no you got to work for welfare. So not only do you have to be a full-time parent, but you have to work and oh you know there's no jobs in your skill set anymore they've all been sent to china so if you you know you also need to go to night school or go to the technical college or something and, and get an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree right and dump all this extra burden on you if you want your weekly welfare check you know i guess things don't change in a in hundred years He decides that he'll be best going off alone in his education, though, and learning while he writes. So he just, you know, in this way, he he at least stands up to Ruth in her most odious moments by saying, no, I'm going to be an autodidact. And we we certainly support Eden in this choice. And then chapter 11, this is the last chapter I'll look at for today. Um, He begins writing as much as he can, producing poems as well as stories. And this, the poems seem very interesting. I, I don't know if later on we get to read some of these, but they're, they're called like sea lyrics. It's a really nice name for these poems. And they're mostly love poems dedicated to Ruth or inspired by Ruth. Um, but he kind of sits on those. Uh, but he writes stories, too. And he starts sending in submissions. He waits for money from his submissions. But all he starts getting are these rejection notices. And he's baffled at why these stories aren't accepted, mostly because he reads a lot and he realizes a lot of garbage is printed and paid for every day, yet he doesn't. He says, he read them over and over. He liked them so much that he could not puzzle out the cause of their rejection until one day he read in a newspaper that manuscripts should be typeset. That explained it. Of course editors were so busy that they could not afford the time and strain of reading handwriting so martin rented a typewriter and spent the day mastering the machine each day he typed what he composed and he typed his earlier manuscripts as fast as they were returned to him he was surprised when the typed ones began to come back his jaw seemed to become square his chin more aggressive and he bundled the manuscript off to new editors and um this is going to be an ongoing problem in the early part of the novel it's just his failure to get anything sold He's shy to show the work to Ruth. He doesn't want to show Ruth what he's written. He's he's embarrassed to do that. So he gives it to Gertrude, his sister. And she can't help much. She's really only interested in the happy endings and the money that he could get from it. So she's impressed that you can get so much money for writing. And of course, she wants that money to come in. But she also just wants a happy ending. So she doesn't quite like Eden's stories. And Eden feels... At this point you know that there's already another class divide like he he sees the beauty in these stories but the common reader represented by his sister can't and he's frustrated by that as well and at the end of the chapter eden has finished his volume of poems the Sea lyrics but he's unable to bring himself to submit them to any publisher so that's something else he sits on so with that we'll close the first part of martin eden this covers about a quarter of the whole novel We have seen our hero break free of his working class background, at least uh, in his ambitions. He's become enamored in middle class intellectualism, and he's begun a career as a writer. He has failed to make anything of it, though, and he's gone far in breaking the bridges to his own background while doing so. He is a man literally building a bridge. Not literally, I guess figuratively. (laughs) He's a man figuratively building a bridge across a chasm. But with each step of the way moving forward, he breaks, he turns around and breaks What's behind him? Each step toward the middle class and towards Ruth becomes a step away from his own community and family and upbringing. In part two, we'll follow Eden's career as it develops, as he starts to become an established writer, and look at his growing fascination with social Darwinism and individualism. And now, at this point, without a clear class identity anymore, having moved away from his working class roots and not yet embraced fully the middle class or not fully been embraced by the middle class, he will turn towards individualism as his solution. So thank you so much for listening. I'll be back very, very soon with the second part of Jack London's Martin Eden. But in the meantime, if you have any opinions about this novel, please share them. I love hearing from listeners and fellow lovers of American literature. Um, yeah, so I'll get back to reading more of Martin Eden, and I'll, I'll share my thoughts as soon as I... Get them out